I am Nikolos Bornovis of Capital Link, and I would like to welcome you all to the 19th annual Close and Funds and Global ETFs Forum. With a 19-year track record, this forum has been established as a major forum that brings together uh, investment professionals to discuss the latest trends and developments in closed and funds, ETFs, MLPs, and BDCs. And this is a particularly critical year, given that we are going through the pandemic uh, challenges. So we're going to talk about the economy and the investment uh, outlook during this period and, and afterwards. And we also have the elections coming up uh, soon. So it is a particularly interesting time to discuss uh, what is going on in the economy and the investment world. We have with us uh, a great panel. Uh, I would like to thank all the sponsors for uh, being with us today, uh, for uh, supporting the forum year after year. And given that uh, we have, um, it's a digital event, we have the opportunity to open it up to a larger audience. So without any more delay, I will turn it over to Mariana, who is going to be our moderator, and thank you to, to uh, Jonathan, uh, Robert, and hopefully Dave Lamb will be with us very soon. Thank you very much, uh, Nicholas. Uh, first of all, I would like to um, thank Nicholas and the entire Capital Link team for reinventing this conference that we've been attending for almost two decades. While we may not see the beautiful flowering trees in the spring, um, this is uh, wonderful to come back together uh, after so many months and uh, talk about close and funds and ETFs. So kudos to, to Nicholas and the entire team. I know that they've been working extremely hard um, for a while now. Um, so let's just jump on our uh, very first panel. Uh, a very esteemed um, uh, panelist that, that I have uh, this morning. And uh, I see that Dave Lamb has joined us as well. Um, Apparently, network problems or connection problems, but uh, maybe it was just the selection of his pants. Um, so we'll see. But still thrilled to have uh, Dave Lamb from Naveen with us, as well as Bob Bush from Calamos and Jonathan Isaac um, from Eaton Vance, uh, three individuals who have been in this were in this uh, industry for a long, long time. I know because I've known them for a long, long time and who have tremendous insight um, into uh, closed and funds that we will discuss now. We will um, talk about three main points. Uh, we're gonna start with, uh, at the beginning, with closed and fund IPOs. Um, then we're going to talk about um, discounts and, and premiums uh, that we always uh, need to talk and is always interesting to discuss um, for closed and funds. And we're gonna, um, finish with some comments on, on leverage, which has been particularly interesting uh, this year, given the volatility. And of course, we hope to still have questions for uh, Q&A. Feel more than free to submit your question uh, in the Q&A section uh, at the bottom. I will be, uh, all of us will be watching those and we'll try our best to answer all of them for you. So with that, uh, let's just start, as I said at the beginning, with uh, closed and fund IPOs. And there has been a, uh, an amazing evolution in the past at least five years, if not longer, uh, in structuring closed and fund IPOs. Jonathan is going to um, 
start us with a little bit of history, how that has evolved, and uh, then Dave will tell us about one of the recent um, uh, Nuveen IPOs. And I know Bob will also give us some insight as well. So Jonathan, why don't you tell us about what has been happening in the past few years, the evolution? Sure. Uh, thanks, Marianne, and um, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining um, this virtual conference. Um, yeah, I thought I would start this topic just maybe with a little history. It's been almost or near as, near as matters um, 10 years you know, since the last uh, financial meltdown, and, and you know, we've seen a little over 10 years of, of closed-end fund primary issuance since then. And I thought it might be instructive to kind of see how that has gone, uh, look at what has happened in the last couple of years, which is definitely see a reemergence of um, closed-end fund IPOs, and kind of maybe compare the, the, the developments that have happened since this latest financial shock uh, compared to what happened in 2009. Um, and if you look back um, to that time, it was really sort of in the middle of 2009 that, that people sort of started to raise their heads above the above the trenches and, uh, and engage again in trying to, to, to start primary issuance, which started pretty slowly um, and uh, really remained that way, I'd say, for a, for a couple of years out of that crisis. Uh, but it didn't take that long until the sort of 2012, 2013 era uh, for things really to, to kind of crank up again. And over that two-year period, and it was interesting to kind of look back and remind myself, there were 46 funds issued in that two-year period, um, and they raised somewhere around um, $26 billion across those, those two years. Um, in one of them, you were seeing five funds being offered in a single month. Uh, which is kind of crazy to, to remember that, that that was going on kind of as recently as, as 2013. Um, things then died down a little again. Um, and during the middle part of, of, of that decade, around 2015, you saw the first kind of shift in structure um, to the target term vehicle, which I think one might say became the only kind of acceptable way of offering a close-end fund IPO in the middle of in the middle of the decade. Um, these were, I guess, bond-like in nature in that they had a defined uh, maturity date, so the, the term. They also had a target of, of returning the in initial net asset value, which the fund had been invested in. Um, and they were all pretty short-term in nature, generally. I think the shortest was probably a three-year term, the longest maybe seven. Um, and the load structure involved in these was, was significantly different than the typical perpetual IPO of, of your that um, had come down to a, a sort of two and a half percent kind of range um, in nature. And, and that, that phase lasted maybe two or three years till, till really even that uh, type of issuance began to slow significantly. Part of the problem was there are only really certain asset classes that one could use a target term uh, vehicle with. Um, so I think the market sort of went back, thought about it, and, and kind of tried to come up with what I can only call as a sort of compromise between the two, which is really where we are today, which is a longer term, typically in the sort of more in the 12-year um, kind of range, but that does open you up to, to different kinds of asset classes as does the fact that you're no longer trying to guarantee or, or, or you don't have a goal of trying to return the initial net asset value on these funds. 
Um, and perhaps most significantly, we're going back to a structure that, frankly, I remember from the late 90s where the closed end sponsor, so Eaton Vance, Calamos, Nuveen, are the ones who are responsible for, for the load that is paid out to, to the um, financial advisor. And the investor themselves have, have no, or it has no impact on them whatsoever. So really you're talking about a no load type vehicle where initial net asset value is the same uh, as initial market price, which I think we've seen as, as we've seen issuance, issuance pick up in 2019 um, and year to date in 2020, I think it's had a definite impact on the market. If I take this year as an example, we lost two months completely in, in April and May, given the, the sort of recovery from, from the financial shock. Um, but despite that, have already raised as much as was raised in, in 2019. Um, so let me pause there and maybe you can talk a little about someone who's got some real life experience about offering a, a, a new IPO in this environment. Dave, do you want to tell us about your most recent experience that Naveen just went through? Sure, Mariana, and, and I hope you can hear me, and my apologies. What, one of the experience we have in, in the virtual environment is technology issues, which, uh, you know, your normal device, you have to uh, uh, improvise. So um, that is one of the challenges we have in this environment, using uh, home technology, and uh, certainly in, in the environment that we're seeing today in the primary market, uh, you know, the old IPO sales model that involved uh, sales teams getting into, into as many advisor offices as possible, you know, that, that model has clearly changed in this environment. Uh, the new norm is uh, virtual meetings, uh, including uh, in many cases, uh, daily national web webinars, as well as uh, firm specific webinars. Uh, certainly in this new environment, this virtual environment, there's close coordination uh, uh, with home offices, including scheduling these virtual meetings. Um, which also means um, understanding different technologies that each firm uses, because uh, you want to make sure that you're uh, accessing advisors in the best way possible. Um, we did, um, and I think others that have been in this virtual environment have, um, you know, um, experienced some efficiencies in reaching uh, more environments. For example, you know, advisors can join webinars from wherever they are at, at, at any point in time, and, most can use their mobile devices, which we find is a way to, uh, to have larger, more efficient meetings. We also saw efficiencies from our product teams and uh, investment personnel in that they could join multiple meetings in a single day without, without having to travel uh, to, to those offices. So it's very efficient from uh, a meeting perspective and from um, the ability that, you know, for example, our, our, our product um, uh, managers could join multiple calls and they could split the duties and, and they could uh, join meetings uh, from, you know, their, their, their homes and, and continue to do their day job uh, of uh, managing other assets. So we found that there was some, some efficiencies in, um, in the virtual environment. And, Quite frankly, uh, Mariana, I think as we come out of this pandemic and you know, we get back to normal, I think some of the efficiencies that we've seen in the uh, virtual roadshows will carry over where uh, you know, investment personnel, for example, will you know, instead of jumping on a plane and heading to the East Coast, West Coast, wherever they may go, 
I think we'll see more and more of a blended model of, of, uh, of how we promote uh, funds in the primary market. So I think that's one, one takeaway from all this. I, I know you can say that in, in uh, across multiple industries, but <clears throat> certainly with, um, with the primary market, I think that's something we'll see more and more of, um, much more efficient use of technology. Um, again, with the idea of getting in front of as many advisors as possible in that, you know, monthly roadshow. Thank you, Dave. And actually, we already have a question that I think I can very nicely weave into uh, to ask Bob um, for, your, for your input. And that is, uh, most closed-end fund IPOs have been income-focused uh, in a great bull market, which is true. Not all of them, but um, the majority has been, especially a few years ago. Um, comment on <clears throat> when capital gain participation might be included in the closed-end fund IPO evolution. And uh, Bob, I know you, your firm has some asset classes that are not just purely income. And after you finish, perhaps, Dave, you can also um, add a, a, explain a little bit what you were telling us about your most recent IPO, that it, while it appears to be a pure muni, uh, I'm sorry, a pure, <laughs> pure income focused, uh, it may not be exactly just pure income. So Bob, can you tell us about capital appreciation? Well, sure. Happy to. Happy to. So I'll take you way back uh, to the to the 1990s. At that point in time, the closed-end fund space was really primarily two camps. It was emerging market, oftentimes country funds, equity funds that didn't pay a distribution, and you had muni funds. And so uh, the, the market came to the conclusion that funds that had that paid a distribution typically traded better relative to their NAVs. And so at that point in time, we sat down with, uh, when I was working at Citigroup or Smith Barney at the time as a banker, we sat down with our clients, which included Eaton Vance and, and Naveen, and said, well, what can we do about this? And basically what happened was it was a revolution or an evolution in the industry where uh, as a prerequisite, most of the IPOs, and that's the way it is today, had to have some distribution associated um, with their offering. And so what that did was that opened it up to a whole host of different asset classes, including equities. Um, we at Calmos have a number of funds that uh, invest in convertibles, um, which actually gives you the benefit of getting some income, um, but on a risk managed basis, uh, capital appreciation, which then you can monetize uh, to, uh, to as part of the distribution. So this is something I think that's been around for, you know, going back to the 1990s, I think it's always going to be there. I think you're always going to see a blend of income-oriented funds, such as the munis, um, and uh, funds that have capital appreciation involved. There were a number of covered call funds done uh, back in the early 2000s when the equity markets were fairly, uh, you know, they weren't really doing much. and It was a way to sort of extract in income out of equity uh, by writing options and being able to get uh, uh, some premium income to, to pay for distribution. So, I think over time, the space has evolved. Uh, I think it's fascinating now that, and this, this will be a segue into Dave, that um, these muni funds now are being offered uh, both as income-oriented vehicles, which they traditionally always had, but also with the opportunity for some capital appreciation. I remember in the day having conversations with my friends at Naveen, and, and, and uh, we were talking about uh, having putting funds together that were hybrids, that had some muni in it, and maybe some equity, and the idea back then was uh, was 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 not well received. Oh no, muni funds are muni funds, and 
you know, there's taxable and there's tax exempt and you, you don't kind of meld them. But obviously markets evolve and, and uh, the needs of our clients have evolved. And I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's great now that you have these, these different aspects of it. So um, I guess I'll pass it to Dave because obviously what you just accomplished with your congrats on that fund uh, certainly resonated with, with your investors. And certainly I think it offers uh, a different opportunity for the market. Yeah, thanks, Bob. And, and I, I would say, you know, our more, most recent deal, which was a, a, a municipal based fund that had really a, a, a go anywhere type of uh, a tilt that, that could use credit sector yield curve positioning, where, you know, the income was not the sole focus of, of the product, which we, you, you have traditionally seen in, in munis and fixed income. It really was a returns based approach. And, as you mentioned, Bob, um, the market has evolved really since, you know, 2019 when we saw this NAV model. I, we do see more and more uh, fund sponsors coming to market uh, with, with products that are more fully utilizing the closed structure, which really means having a stable, more fully invested asset base. It also allows investor uh, investment managers to potentially more fully express their investment views without having to worry about, you know, liquidity needs. So we're seeing more and more products that are, are more unique uh, and using more um, uh, opportunities and less liquid investments. You know, that, you know for, for our fund that we just came with, it, it, it is a muni-based fund and, and a substantial portion of its overall return will be income. But, you know, the evolution of the marketplace and closed-end funds, as you mentioned, Bob, being able to monetize that total return, whether it's, a total return coming from our municipal portfolio or whether it's an equity or some blend of asset classes, I think also allows um, shareholders to receive attractive levels of, of cash flow through a regular distribution. So we are seeing you know, an evolution in our space and, and you know, the most recent deals that we've seen really, I guess, since 2019 have included um, a whole host of different opportunities, you know, from an investment perspective, whether it's private equity or, or private debt as a sleeve or, or direct investments, alternatives, and certainly uh, deeper credit. So we are seeing an evolution, I, I would say in the last couple of years of, of sponsors really trying to look at opportunities for investors to get uh, into more unique uh, uh, specialized offerings and, and really, you know, from the beginning of time, uh, the appeal, I, I believe, to investors and, and folks that need uh, regular sources of income or cash flow is, is the power of the closed and funded structure and able to deliver that no, no matter what the asset class. And I know you go back a, a long time. You, you mentioned country funds. Uh, you know, quite frankly, once upon a time, as you pointed out, those, those funds didn't even have distributions. But certainly since uh, the late 80s, uh, early 90s, you know, the focus has been um, on, on delivering, you know, uh, attractive levels of cash flow to shareholders. So um, it, it's an interesting time in our, our, our business. Uh, you know, we also remember once upon a time where in a given year, there may be, you know, 20 to 30 deals in a year, you know, multiple deals in a month. We're seeing, you know, more selective, you know, more, um, um, focus on on one deal a month type of thing so um you know we'll, we'll see and, and you know we're, we're generally seeing in this environment that um 
the deal sizes are, are tending to grow. There was a period where we had, uh, you know, for a little drought where, you know, average deal sizes were, were relatively small. So I think we're, we're, um, we're in a new environment today. And I do remember before the financial crisis reviewing nine funds for a given month. Uh, so even <laughs> more than what Jonathan mentioned earlier. Um, Dave, you briefly talked about uh, private and that seems to be a little bit of a trend, at least for some of the funds. And I think that uh, tremendously highlights the, the benefits of the closed end fund structure because what other instrument um, that is exchange traded can can benefit and, and can have the luxury of investing in uh, in private or or instruments that are much much less liquid without worrying about uh, inflows and outflows or redemptions and creations. So um, tremendous benefit of the and uniqueness of the closed end fund structure. Um, let's let's move to the our, our second topic. Um, in terms of talking about specifics on the closed end fund structure, premiums and discounts. Um, Jonathan, can you give us a, a sense of what has been happening um, with premiums and discounts uh, lately? And here I'm going to try to weave in, perhaps for the three of you, another question that we got, and that is about the, the buyer base. And is it the same um, financial advisors that we used to have in the past? Or perhaps do you see uh, maybe that buyer base expanding into more RIA type clients or, or anything else? Can, can you shed some light? Because at the end of the day, um, I've always thought about this. If we have the entire investor universe, focused on closed-end funds, and, and if they know closed-end funds and understand their risks and their benefits, um, we, I, I think we would have only premiums, to tell you the truth. Um, but it's a very still, I would say, a small base of clients and investors that focus on closed-end funds. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that as, as we um, talk about discounts and premiums. But Jonathan, can you tell us? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, I think what the questions that ties a little bit into what I was going to say to begin with. Um, no real need for me, I think, to rehash the carnage that went on in, in all markets uh -huh. back in, in March. Um, obviously, what was going on in various asset classes, whether it was equity, credit, municipals, um, impacted the uh, closed-end fund space as much as it impacted everywhere else. Um, I think the the, the difference here was was the size and the speed at which um, things melted down. Um, on the one hand, uh, in a closed-end fund, that should be an advantage because it's a stable base of capital. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, and we'll talk some more about leverage, I think, in a minute, um, many of these uh, vehicles are levered. And when something like that happens, the impacts can be are much more severe than they are when you're, you're not. Um, so that can kind of mess with that stable pool of assets a little bit. Um, but, but to the, the question you were, or the additional question you were answering, this, this is still largely a retail investor base. Um, and as, as such, uh, can be a somewhat inefficient market, which um, when you go through periods like that can make uh, what is already pretty severe volatility look even worse than, than it actually is. Um, and there is not 
typically uh, the sort of uh, institutional buyer on hand to kind of clean that up in, a, in an efficient and, and quick manner. So you will get, and we saw a couple of days, I think towards the end of March, which were, were literally just jaw dropping in terms of the size that the discounts became. I think certainly on one day, I feel like it was more than, than late 2008, early 2009. Um, and, and particularly in, in such things as MLP funds, REIT funds, emerging market debt, and, and to some extent, senior loan funds. Um, but what this inefficiency also means is, is there's opportunity in those times. And again, I hate to go on about how long certainly the four of us have been involved in this business and how much we have seen, I think, during that involvement. Um, but generally speaking, those are the opportunities that, that investors want and, and need to take as long as they understand the risks that are involved in, in, in taking those opportunities uh, because the market will come back to normal. No one knows exactly what time frame that's going to happen in, uh, but it will. And, and we have seen both major and minor disconnects um, occur uh, in all markets, but, but exaggerated in closed-end fund land um, and then have looked back and six months later and being like, oh my God, look at that opportunity and, and I missed it. Um, uh, and so, you know, do I think the investor base is growing? I think, I think institutions get more involved when, when disconnects like that happened and there are probably more institutions realizing that there are opportunities at that time. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, that just to go back to IPOs for a second, that this new no load structure is attracting financial advisors that perhaps were not attracted to closed-end funds before, um, and thus hopefully expanding the investor base if, if they're bringing their clients into, into the closed-end fund world. Um, and I'll, I'll just finish this bit with, with just saying, you know, if you look at the overall investment environment today, where else can you buy diversified product offerings that that provide the attractive levels of income that closed-end funds provide anywhere. You, you just can't. So if there were ever an opportunity to, to introduce people to these vehicles, to me, now is the, the perfect time. Yeah, if I, if, if I may jump in, I think Jonathan's absolutely right. I think you're seeing uh, newer, younger advisors that may not have been around uh, during the financial crisis 10 years ago that I think that are a little more open-minded. Uh, when they think in terms of how they can add income to their client's portfolio uh, and investing in closed-end funds uh, with respect to whatever the asset allocation is uh, on their client's portfolio. I'd also say that clearly in February and March, we saw tremendous opportunities in the closed-end fund space, given what this, these, how wide these discounts got. But even today, um, the, these, you can really still pick up some, some phenomenal opportunities and I'll point to some of our closed-end funds, which invest in convertibles. I'll just use that as an example because that's something we know a little bit about at Calamos. But, you know, we've had funds that their NAVs are up 25, 35%, uh, which is more than beaten uh, the, the related indices, such as the high yield or um, the convertible index. But the stock price is up just a little bit over half of that. And they're trading at discounts, uh, you know, that are double digits when on average some of these funds are some are even trading at premium. So um, why is that the case? I think, again, the concern is that many of these investors are a little bit uh, have apprehension about getting back in the market. 
in spite of the fact that and the stock price is just not necessarily caught up with the NAV appreciation, which has been phenomenal. And clearly when you have a bull market, uh, we have seen, at least since the sell-offs in February and March, and you have relatively inexpensive leverage, it's a perfect uh, uh, ingredients for what you're gonna see is, is, is phenomenal NAV appreciation. But again, the stock price is not quite caught up with it yet. So again, I still, I still think there are great opportunities out there in some of these sectors, uh, especially in the convertible space. Bob, you talked about some of the, the newer, younger financial advisors. Um, I would also like to mention some of the uh, wiser, more seasoned um, financial advisors uh, that were there back in 94, when at least it was the first time that I remember discounts widened tremendously for an entire, uh, 94, yeah, for an entire year. Uh, and those investors have seen not only that, but 2008 and 2018, and more recently back in March, and a few other less severe um, kind of dislocations for discounts. And while it may have been scary back in 94, I mean, they've seen this before and they know what happens after. And sometimes you have to just tolerate it. You don't know exactly how long it's gonna take, but they've seen this. And I have to say, I feel like, okay, I've seen this before <laughs> and I know chances are what's gonna happen after this. Um, so those are the, the financial advisors that just have stuck with closed end funds uh, and are, are very, comfortable with, with the risks and, and um, how they behave. Dave, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I, I wanted to mention, Mariana, and, and to Bob's point, you know, the, the younger generation of advisors, really, as we see the evolution of, of how business is conducted, and, and we're seeing that the transformation from, from transactional fee-based, uh, excuse me, uh, commission-based advisors to a fee-based, that's one area that, you know, I, I think there's tremendous opportunity and growth in closed-end funds, trying to ha have those fee-based uh, advisors participate in closed-end funds. Certainly when they're looking at constructing overall portfolios for their clients, and, and many have an income need, certainly as, as the younger investors mature in, in what we're seeing now, that, you know, the growth of, of folks that are are near or in retirement that have you know income needs you know have to replace a paycheck you know I, you know as we've all discussed you know closed end funds and, and how they deliver a cash flow and higher levels of income Jonathan said where where can you find you know that access to this you know at a no load um, you know it, it's hard to find so I think that's a, a huge area of growth you know getting more fee based advisors. Uh, participating in closed-end funds. Um, I'll bring in here a question that came in uh, in terms of what are the main threats to closed-end fund issuance. And I would say closed-end funds in general, because I, I've heard this well with maybe ETFs or especially with active ETFs, is that going to be cannibalizing closed-end funds? Um, I would say no. Uh, because closed-end funds do have a few very specific features like leverage, which again is a double-edged sword, but it, it is a very unique feature that um, closed-end funds have, uh, the discounts as well, and um, they still, closed-end funds don't need to worry about inopportune inflows or outflows. So um, I would say active ETFs are not necessarily uh, a threat to closed-end funds. Yeah, um, Mariana, I I see one of the biggest threats, and you touched upon it, is discounts. You can call it a threat, but I, Bob just 
you know, pointed out, it's also an opportunity to access an asset class at certain periods of time when uh, sentiment you know, overswings one way or another. Uh, in this case, you know, negative, where you can enter at, at a very attractive level. So, I, I do think uh, discounts, you know, tend to pose a threat. They're looked at at negatives, but ultimately, um, discounts are embedding investor sentiment at a point in time. And you know, if you want an access and, and you find a certain as, asset class attractive, you know, getting it at at a discount might be a very compelling way to to actually join or participate in a certain asset class that you're, you're trying to uh, um, participate in. Okay, we only have uh, less than five minutes left. And so in a way, thank goodness that the third topic is leverage. And hopefully, uh, Bob, you can tell us a little bit about uh, leverage and some recent changes. And thank goodness that there is another panel later today that will talk, that will focus just on leverage. So hopefully we're just kind of um, getting you a little bit of a trailer, just a little interested in that and, and, and that you will join uh, the, the leverage panel later today. But Bob, can you give us um, kind of a, a four minute <laughs> um, intro on that, what has been happening? Sure. So as you pointed out, Mariana, leverage is a double-edged sword. And obviously in a down market, that's going to propel um, uh, detrimental returns to the NAV. But clearly, as we've seen, as the markets recovered uh, in March, um, they have, have absolutely propelled uh, the NAV performance. Um, because you know, obviously the markets have done well. And the fact that the spread between what you're borrowing at oftentimes at a floating rate. I mean, our floating rate right now is, I think we're paying 66 basis points, which is, you know, ph phenomenal. Um, you know, you can't beat that. So um, clearly that has propelled the, you know, the NAV returns going forward. So it's certainly your, your friend on the upside. Um, what has happened is, and I'll just reference, so many funds and uh, leverage through floating rate, but they also do it through fixed rate, whether it be uh, preferreds or for debt. Uh, I know there's another panel on leverage that's going to get into this uh, a little bit later, um, but one of the rating agencies, Fitch, has actually come out with, with new guidelines regarding how they're going to rate uh, uh, the, the, the long-term preferred and uh, that many of these issuers uh, are, have embarked on. And in essence, what, what it's doing is it's, it's saying that they're really not going to put AAA ratings on any uh, preferred going forward. Um, that double A's will only really apply to high quality government munis uh, or corporate assets and that high yield convertibles, equities, preferreds, uh, many of the other asset classes that most closed end funds invest in are, are really going to be delegated to the single A uh, platform. So I think that's going to be um, an interesting change uh, with respect to sort of that dynamic, how that all evolves. Uh, I'll let the, the next panel speculate, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's clearly, um, I think it's worth mentioning um, at this point in time. Dave, do you want to just add uh, in the last minute that we have, um, we've been noticing some, given the very low cost of borrowing that Bob just mentioned, um, earnings have been increasing for a number of funds, especially muni funds, and we're already seeing dividend increases. So. Um, Jonathan and, and Dave, do you want to maybe comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, cer certainly, as Bob pointed out, the the, the short end of the uh, of the curve, um, whether it's taxable or, or, or municipal, is at all time lows. While 
while the long end has come down as well, it hasn't come down to the same degree as the short end. So the steepness of, of the yield curve or credit spreads is adding incremental earnings to those funds that, that employ leverage. So uh, that in, incremental earnings in, in some cases is being uh, uh, distributed through higher, uh, higher dividend rates. So in munis, for example, Mariana, we've seen uh, several sponsors in the last several months increase distributions. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, if you look at the underlying earnings in, in those funds that are, are borrowing at historical lows, it, we're, we're seeing an uptick uh, across the board in, in earnings. Thank you. Jonathan, 30 seconds. We're being told that time's up. But anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I, I, I saw the time up, uh, so I'll try and be very quick. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about an awful lot out there right now, but the environment that we're in, if you look back historically, is really a kind of perfect environment for closed-end funds, certainly from an interest rate standpoint. Um, so I kind of just repeat what I said earlier on, that if, if you can get at a discount diversified investment products that offer the type of income streams these funds can, um, I would suggest you, you take a look at them. Great. Thank you very much to the three of you. Uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne.